you would please uh, open your Bibles uh, to uh, Proverbs chapter 18. Proverbs chapter 18. This evening's message is uh, from verses 1 through 11. And I have to say that uh, ever since I wrote this message a number of weeks ago, I've been uh, eager and excited to deliver it, but Providence has said no. Uh, even though you, you wrote it three, four weeks ago, it's, it's this evening for various reasons that we need to hear it. So uh, for whatever reason, God and his providence has given us this text for tonight. We nevertheless have it before us. So let's give it our undivided attention. So Proverbs chapter 18, beginning in verse 1, hear now the word of God. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. When wickedness comes, contempt comes also, and with dishonor comes disgrace. The words of a man's mouth are deep waters. The fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. It is not good to be partial to the wicked or to deprive the righteous of justice. A fool's lips walk into a fight and his mouth invites a beating. A fool's mouth is his ruin and his lips are a snare to his soul. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. Whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer. Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful that you have gathered us here to close this Lord's Day with worship uh, as your people had done countless ages ago as they offered the evening sacrifices. We pray, O Lord, that uh, our sacrifices this evening of praise and thanksgiving to you uh, would uh, rise into the heavenly holy of holies, and that from heaven, O Lord, you would, through the power of your Spirit, speak to us uh, through Christ, our great high priest, that his words would flow down from heaven and enter our hearts by the power of your spirit, that you would write them upon the walls of our hearts and thereby conform us more and more to the image of your son. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. It was the 17th century poet, John Donne, who wrote a famous uh, poem whose title, I suspect, has been permanently etched in our collective memory. He says, no man is an island. That's the title. And I think we've probably all heard that or maybe even perhaps said that at one point. But he goes on to say this, no man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less, as well as if a headland were, As well as any manner of thy friends or of thine own were, any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. Don's poem captures the fact that we are all connected one to another in some way. 
And however true that might be of us in general in terms of, say, our connections to our communities, to our jobs, to our families, we want to note this connection is especially true within the church. God redeems us through Jesus Christ, our head, and he incorporates us into his body. And if we were therefore both created and redeemed to be part of a body, then this means that there are theological and ethical dimensions uh, that, uh, that, that pertain to the Christian life of wisdom. In other words, how does wisdom and conversely, how does foolishness play out in the church? You know, in other words, we all want to be personally wise. We want to personally avoid foolishness and sin. But then how does our individual pursuit of wisdom impact the rest of the church? How does it impact others? To pick up on that note from Don's poem, no man is an island. If one person dies, no matter how disconnected that person may be from me, I die. There's a part of me that dies because there's a part of me that is connected uh, to everyone. Well, we have to remember that when Solomon writes about life in the community and wisdom in particular as it pertains to our communities, that he had Israel in mind. So in other words, when we read Proverbs, it's not just that Solomon is talking about wisdom in your neighborhood, wisdom in your political community, wisdom in your city. He is first and foremost addressing the people of Israel. And as our own Westminster Confession of Faith characterizes Israel, it was a church under age. And so what this means is that the primary reference point to Solomon's counsel and his encouragement for us to pursue wisdom is essentially the church. And so Solomon will show us that fools isolate themselves from God as well as from the church, and they also conversely destroy the church by their foolish ways. So they're either isolating themselves, removing themselves from the church, or if they remain within the midst of the church, they're seeking to destroy the church by their foolish ways. By contrast, on the other hand, the wise seek out the company of the church. They seek out the company of the wise. And unlike the fool who tries to destroy the church by their words, uh, the, the wise Christian will seek to build up will seek to edify the church by their wise ways and their words. So what we want to do as we look upon these first 11 verses in chapter 18 is we want to see what the fool's island looks like. No man is an island. Well, Solomon says no fools believe that they can exist unto themselves as if they were on their own island. Secondly, we want to give thought to the question of Do we want to destroy the church or do we want to build it up? Do we want to pursue foolishness and wreak havoc or do we want to pursue wisdom and seek to build up those who are around us? And then third and finally, we want to give thought to the church's foundation, which Solomon does address here where he talks about the difference between the foundation of the church versus every other edifice that fools try to build. So the fool's island, destroying versus building, and then lastly, the church's foundation. So let's give thought first to what Solomon has to say about the fool's island. Think about how God has designed us. Uh, When he created us, he made us for community, to be a part of a group. 
When he created human beings, he didn't create just one person all by himself, but rather he created two. He created a man and a woman who were supposed to live in harmony with one another. And even though there were only two of them, nevertheless, they were a fledgling community. But as he created this community of the husband and wife to live together in harmony, he also created them to live in community with the triune God. God was dwelling in their midst in the Garden of Eden. And so there they were, a community, not only Adam and Eve, but also Adam and Eve and God. Think, of course, to what Jesus has said about where the presence of God is, where two or more are gathered together in prayer. And you can see that, that that fledgling community there, initially on the heels of the creation. But the consequence of the fall was that humanity's sin uh, created disharmony. Uh, And you see this quite quickly in that when God confronted Adam and Eve for their sin, the disharmony immediately began to bubble to the surface. What did Adam do? He turned and pointed his finger to God and he said, this happened because of the woman that you gave me. Disharmony within the community. Adam was sowing strife with his words. He was sowing dissension with his words and dividing this small community by uttering sinful words against the woman as well as against God himself. Yes, Eve did tempt Adam with eating from the tree of knowledge, but Adam should have confessed that he and he alone was responsible for his own sin. He shouldn't have said, it's the woman that you gave me, but rather he should have said, forgive me, Lord, I violated your law. Not only was I negligent in keeping my wife from sin and sending one of the cherubim over to dispatch the serpent, but I myself engaged in sin and I violated your law. Please forgive me. Instead, he sowed dissension. He sowed division. He pointed fingers. In that moment, we could say that both Adam and Eve became islands. They isolated themselves from God as well as from one another. And this is evident when Eve, when confronted with her sin, went and pointed the finger at God and say, well, it's the serpent and it's implied that you created uh, that led me astray. It's not my own fault. I think we can say that these types of characteristics that we see unfolding in the garden Words of division, words of dissension, accusation, using words to tear down, we could say is a hallmark characteristic of the fool. And so Solomon writes of the fool's actions that isolate him from the covenant community. Verse 1, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. How true is that of Adam and Eve? They were seeking their own desires. He breaks out against all all sound judgment. Adam and Eve broke out against all sound judgment. You know, you would think they would have said, well, you know what? God has designed everything that we see. He's made us in his image. He's given us a command. He's given us all the trees in the Garden of Eden from which we can eat. And yet surely we know better. Surely we know 
that we can trust the serpent over the word of our creator. You see, the fool creates an island of his own belief, of his own convictions, of his own judgment, and he rejects wise counsel. Adam and Eve both rejected the sound judgment of God, and they disobeyed his command by pursuing wisdom on their own terms. I mean, this is what's fascinating when you read this, is that there's a sense in which Eve saw a part of things clearly. When it says in Genesis 3, 6, so the woman saw that the tree was good for food, true observation, and that it was a delight to the eyes. It was undoubtedly beautiful. There was an aesthetic pleasure to it. And that the tree was desired to make one wise. Yes, this is true. And yet, what does she do? She took of its fruit and ate. The tree was all about wisdom, but not in pursuing wisdom according to her judgment, according to her own isolated counsel, but pursuing wisdom according to the counsel and command of God, pursuing things his way, not her way. So not only does the fool seek his own desire, but you can also say that the fool becomes intoxicated drunk on his own thought. Verse 2, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. You know, one of the things that the wife and I do is that if we go out to dinner with somebody, or if we have somebody over, sometimes I'll ask the question after the company leaves or after we're in the car, or sometimes my wife will ask the question, but both of us at one point or another will say, did I talk too much? Did I say too much? You know, because we're worried that maybe we accidentally dominated the conversation. We were more interested in expressing our own opinions rather than in taking in information, rather than in listening to what others have to say. Well, in this case here, the fool, rather than seek the wisdom of God and quieting his heart and saying, oh, Lord, speak, rather than listening to the wisdom of the church and quieting his heart and saying, let me open my ears that I might take in wisdom from the church. Notice both of these lie outside of the person, either in God or in the church. The fool lives on an island of his own counsel. The person who isolates himself and goes against God's design is the fool because he's going against God's design. He's created us for community. He's created us to be a part of a group. He's created us, if I can put it this, this blunt, bluntly, he's created us for church. Such a person who rejects all of that ends up bringing judgment, dishonor, and disgrace upon himself according to verse 3. You know, it should, it should be telling, and it, we, you know, this should be something that tells us a lot. In Greek, the one who stood off by himself was called an idios, one who stands off by himself. It's where we get the word idiot. The idiot stands off by himself, takes too much of his own counsel, listens to no one, is only interested in expressing his own opinions. And this is what Solomon showcases here, the fool's island. And so we should ask ourselves, do I isolate myself? Do we ignore God's word? Or worse, do we disobey it? 
Do we ignore or reject the wisdom of the church? You know, it's possible that we can, you know, we can find people who might agree with us, and it may be two or three people. On the other hand, maybe it's wise, instead of seeking out the counsel of those that agree with us or that we think that might agree with us, that we would seek out the counsel with those who we think we know they might disagree with us. One of the most difficult things that I do sometimes when I write material for a book is sometimes I seek out the feedback of a critic, somebody who has disagreed with me before, who I know who will disagree with me, so that I can say, here, tell me what you think of this, because I know that this person won't pull any punches, and maybe I have to sift through some of the things but maybe sometimes the criticism is on target and I think, yeah, I need to fix this or that, rather than sending it to somebody who will say, yeah, sure, no problem, go for it, you know, it's all great. Sometimes it's good to seek out the counsel of those that will disagree with us. But at the same time, we should also say that this doesn't mean that we should only seek out the wisdom and the counsel of the people who are living and breathing. Do we consult the dead? Now, I'm not suggesting anything weird here, but you can easily consult the dead by picking up a book, somebody who has long since died. And in this way, as C.S. Lewis would say, we can consult the wisdom of the ages as the fresh breeze of the centuries blows through our mind in that this is not to say that old books or that uh, you know, that, that, that books from church history, biographies and, and theological works are inerrant or infallible. They're not. But it's often the case that they will not make the same errors that we do today. Where we are weak, they can be strong. Moreover, we're not the first ones to come to the word of God. We're not the first ones to wrestle with very difficult problems. You know, one of the things that I found myself doing uh, in the midst of this pandemic in the past, uh, whatever it's been, I don't know, this past 20 months has been like the longest 10 years of our lives, has it not? So I don't remember when it was, but I remember reading a work by Calvin's uh, colleague, Theodore Beza, uh, and it was a work on how to handle pastoral problems in the midst of the Black Plague. We're not the first uh, Christians to face challenging situations. Do we therefore willingly and eagerly consult the wisdom that God has, uh, you know, littered throughout the church throughout ages? Do we consult the church fathers? Do we consult the reformers? Do we consult our forebears when we have difficult problems? The fool, dare I say the idiot, would say, no, I don't need that. I have the answer. I don't need to consult anyone. But the wise person, Solomon, is implicitly says, no, He recognizes that I'm part of a body. I need the wisdom of God. I need the wisdom of the church. This brings us to a second point, which is to ask the question that when we're a part of the body, are we out to destroy or to build it up? The lie that Satan told to Adam and Eve was that their sin would make them like God. And so I'm sure that their disobedience... They thought that their disobedience would turn out for good, but that they didn't think of the rest of the community. Did did, did Eve really think, as she took the bite of the fruit, 
How will this affect my husband? Did Adam really think before he took a bite of that fruit, how is this going to affect my relationship with my wife? How is this going to affect my relationship with my covenant Lord? Let alone, how is this going to affect my relationship with the surrounding creation? What was the immediate consequence of their sin? It was as small as this, this, this fledgling community was, as small as this church was, consisting of Adam and Eve. Think of what happened as a consequence to this little community, this little church. Adam and Eve were alienated from God. Adam and Eve were estranged from one another. They were at odds with the creation as a consequence of their sin. Not only does Eve blame the serpent, which now puts animosity between her and the creation, but then God, as a consequence of sin, says, by the sweat of your brow, you're going to till the earth. In other words, now it's going to be difficult, and the creation is going to be at odds with you. We can say that in all of these things, we can put all of these these disharmonies that, that were brought about by their actions as being destructive to the church, as small as the church was. Again, where two or three are gathered. Nevertheless, it was small, but it was destructive. Well, such is the nature of our actions in that we can either wisely build or foolishly destroy the church by our words and actions. And one of the ways that we do so is through our words. What does Solomon say here in verse 4? The words of a man's mouth are deep waters. Now, at first, this may sound profound, but it's actually a negative description of the fool. I don't know if you've ever done this, and I've sat, sadly, over the years in many meetings where this has happened, where a very learned person takes the floor and begins to speak, and after, say, a five-minute speech, I think I have no idea what the person was saying. Not a clue. And even at one point, I remember being in a meeting after listening to one of these, you know, uh, you know speeches filled with all kinds of 50-cent words. I kind of caught a glance over at one of my colleagues, and we both kind of smiled at one another. And I had to look away lest I start chuckling really hard because I really didn't understand anything that had just been said. Words man's, oh, sorry, the words of a man's mouth are deep waters. You know, generally speaking, it's, you don't, it's scary to swim in deep waters. <laughs> you don't want to get out there. And especially, I can remember when I would go surfing, it always was disconcerting to me. As I sat on my surfboard, I would kind of look over wondering, I wonder how deep it is out here. <laughs> I wonder how big the fish are. It bothered me that I couldn't see below me. You know, we told the kids when we moved, uh, you know, to Mississippi, we said, we'll be able to go to the, the Gulf and you'll be able to see the bottom. You know, it's going to be nice. You're going to see it. Well, a, per- words, a person's words can either be clear and understandable and accessible or dark and incomprehensible. If they're dark and inaccessible, then of what possible use are they to the church? It may sound impressive. A person may use all kinds of, you know, eloquent words, but if it doesn't make any sense, if they're deep waters, then of what good is it to the church? 
in the history of theology, a group of theologians that called themselves neo-Orthodox theologians, they would try to sound profound in the way that they described the nature of God's transcendence or his otherness. But in the end, it was essentially intelligent-sounding nonsense. You know, how, how helpful is it to say that God's wisdom is like one hand clapping? I'm not sure what that is. It's like a one-ended stick. I think that's so profound. It's too profound. That God, you know, some of these theologians would say, is wholly other and utterly unknowable. Well, tell me, how is it that you can say anything intelligent about this utterly unknowable God if he is utterly unknowable. If he was utterly unknowable, you wouldn't be able to say he's utterly unknowable. You wouldn't know anything about him. Such language is deep. It's dark. It's deep waters. But it's ultimately of no use to the church. So you, you, you can either destroy the church or build the church up through your words. And if your words are inaccessible, then what, what good are they to the church? On the other hand, you can also destroy the church or seek to destroy the church by sowing discord and deceit the way that Adam and Eve did. What does Solomon say in verse 5? He says, it is not good to be partial to the wicked or to deprive the righteous of justice. You see, fools sow deception and discord by showing favor, by being prejudicial, by being partial to the wicked and denying justice to the righteous. Fools sow discord by trying to stir up controversy and strife. Verse 6, a fool's lips walk into a fight and his mouth invites a beating. See, fools, it's often the case that they just want to stir up trouble because they like seeing people argue. But one of the most insidious ways that a fool can splinter and divide the church is through gossip. Notice verses 8 and 9. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. Whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. Gossip can be one of the deadliest forms of sinful speech in the church. Because as Solomon says, it's delicious. You know, people take it into the very inner chambers of their hearts. Gossip, of course, is any type of conversation about other people that... A, maybe they don't want shared. B, it's derogatory about them. Or C, it's filled with rumor and deceit. You know what I heard. And then you go on and tell something to somebody else. King David captures the destructive and hurtful nature of gossip. He writes in Psalm 41, verses 7 and following, All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say, A deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. You know, here David is likely lying on a sickbed and his so-called friends were sowing rumors about him saying, well, he must be ill because he has sinned. Gossip is delicious, Solomon says, and I think it's because it gives us the impression that we have the inside track. 
we know what's really going on. Or we have the ability to give somebody the impression that we know more than most everybody else. We have the inside track. Let me show you how much I know, how important I am. Let me tell you the real scoop. But when we speak ill of others behind their backs and spread rumors as fact, we do unspeakable harm within the church. In a poem written by a Russian poet Alexander Pushkin, he says, When you're so young and fairy years are smeared by gossip's noise, and by the high word's trial fierce, your public honor's fully lost. We can end up doing irreparable damage to the church. We can ruin friendships and reputations by spreading gossip. Or sometimes as gossip goes under the veil of, you know, prayer requests, right? Uh, let me tell you what's going on. Oh, by the way, you should probably pray for that. We can do terrible harm and divide the church. What does Pushkin say? He says, don't drink the poison, outrageous. Leave that high circle bright and close. Leave crazy merriments and pleasures. You still have one good friend of yours. He says, don't give in. Don't consume the poison. Don't sow the discord. Keep your mouth closed. All of this kind of speech whether they're dark and obscure words, whether it's words of discord, or whether it's so, you know, sowing gossip, it's all destructive to the church. It is not wisdom, it's foolishness, it's sinful. If we seek the wisdom of God in Christ, however, I don't think we'll ever want to destroy the church by our speech, but instead build it up. Again, notice the latter half of verse 4. The words of a man's mouth are deep waters, but by contrast, Solomon says, the fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. It's readily accessible. It's easily understood. Unlike the inaccessible ramblings of the fool, the fountain of wisdom just bubbles to the surface naturally. It's comprehensible. It edifies. And unlike the fool, the wise do not pervert justice by their speech and thereby deprive the righteous of justice. The wise do not seek to walk into a fight, but on the contrary, we avoid conflict and where we find it, we speak words of peace and reconciliation. We do not take the morsels of gossip, no matter how delectable they may seem. Instead, what should the wise do? The wise should desire not to consume the delicious uh, you know, food of gossip, but instead the all-powerful word of God. Jeremiah says in chapter 15, verse 16, Your words were found, and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. The prophet found the word of God absolutely satisfying, not that of gossip. Well, what does Paul encourage the church to do? In Colossians 3.16, let the word of, of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. In other words, speak the word of wisdom, speak the gospel of Christ, speak love, speak kindness. Not words of discord, not dark, incomprehensible words or words of gossip. But when it comes ultimately to the church's foundation, which is our third and final point, 
And as we reflect here upon the conduct of the fool and his ability to wreak havoc upon the church, we might think that, well, we're ultimately, you know, at the the mercy of the fool. But Solomon comforts us when he says here in verse 10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Even if it seems as if the, the, the fools have the upper hand. Solomon tells us that the wise have a high tower. We have a fortress and that we can take shelter in Christ, in his word, and in his wisdom. We can wield his word to build the church. We can comfort others as they suffer in pain. We can impart hope to those who struggle. We can communicate the message of the gospel with those who are lost in sin. In a word, we can build of the church. Sometimes, though, it may seem as if maybe our words are falling on deaf ears. You know, I, one of the things that I remember when I was uh, first in the ministry is that uh, I got connected with a young man who was 12 years old, and his and his family uh, his, his his family life was tough because his parents were going through a divorce. And so the mother asked me, "Would I spend some time with this young man?" And I said, "Absolutely, I'd be happy to." Um, you know, I remember spending time with him. I'd disciple him. I uh, got him R.C. Sproul's book, uh, you know, Central Truths of the Christian Faith. And it has like, you know, t- like two-page chapters in it. So we would go through a chapter and we'd talk and we'd do some fun stuff. I, I remember uh took him to Six Flags and there was nobody there. And it was the biggest mistake in my life to ride the same roller coaster like five times in a row without taking a break. I, I told him afterwards, I need to sit down. I think I'm going to die. Um, but... Uh, you know, I didn't know, I, I, I didn't know what, you know, how, what was going on in this young man's heart. And, and uh, you know, th- th- life moved on and I lost track of him. And then about seven or eight years later, he showed up at the back door of the church. And I said, you know, hey, it's so good to see you. And, and what did he tell me? He said, you know, it's funny. I went to college and I ended up going to an RUF meeting and they started talking about the doctrines of grace. And I started to remember the things that you told me years ago. I ran home. I pulled the book off the shelf that you had given me, and I devoured it. You know, it may be that we're not going to see the immediate results of the words that we sow, the words of wisdom, the words of grace, the words of the gospel. Sometimes it takes a long time for a plant to grow. Nevertheless, we mustn't give up hope and think that the plant will not grow or that God is somehow indifferent to our labors. You know, there are undoubtedly going to be times when we, it may seem as if Christ has forgotten his church because the wicked run riot and they seem to rule the day. In the words of the hymn, the church has one foundation, still schisms, tribulation, and hatred fuel our war. We await the consummation of peace forevermore. The saints their watch are keeping, their cry goes up how long, and soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. In other words, this hymn tells us, hang on, trust and hope in Christ. Our labor is not in vain. And so what we may not realize is that when fools sow discord, in the midst of those difficult and trying circumstances, the wise draw nearer to Christ and to one another. We grow in spite of the discord that the fools sow. And so we must therefore cling fast to Christ and to one another 
to ensure that we don't join fools in their sin, but steadfastly pursue the life of God's wisdom through Christ and the Spirit. Beloved, in the end, we have to ask ourselves whether we will live as islands, disconnected, divorced, and detached from the church, Will we live in a manner contrary to God's design and estrangement from God and our brothers and sisters? Or will we live as individuals who are unique, but nevertheless uniquely united to Christ our head and to his church, the body? Will we, like Adam and Eve, foolishly seek our own path and invite destruction and judgment upon ourselves and those around us? Will we sow words of deceit, injustice, strife, and gossip? Or will we feast upon God's word, Christ, the manna from heaven, and then share that word with others? Will we build up the church or will we tear it down? It should be our prayer that is in the grace and the power of Christ as we pursue the wisdom of God, that as Paul writes, that we would let the word of Christ dwell in us richly and that we would teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for the wisdom of your word. We thank you that you are merciful to us and that in spite of our sinfulness and our foolishness, you show us mercy and you love us and you care for us and you give unto us the wisdom that we do not have. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would cause our wisdom, to, our, our wisdom to increase, that we would grow in it, O oh Lord, that you would give us a hunger and thirst for more and that we would hold fast to Christ that we would give up our selfish, foolish, and dare I say, idiotic ways, that we would not want to stand alone, but rather, O oh Lord, that we would, as the body of Christ, stand alone together in Christ, that you would unite us by the bond of the Spirit, not in any way destroying our individuality, but rather that as individuals you would make us more like Christ, that you would conform us to his image, that we would die to ourselves and live unto you. We pray that you would do so for the glory of your name, for the edification of your church, for the upbuilding of our families, and, O oh Lord, for your glory. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen.